Section 38 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 43. Louis the Fourteenth, the Fronde, and the Government of Cardinal Mazarin. 1643-1661. Part 1. Louis the Thirteenth had never felt confidence in the Queen, his wife and Cardinal Richelieu had fostered that sentiment which promoted his views. When M. de Chavigny came, on Anne of Austria's behalf, to assure the dying king that she had never had any part in the conspiracy of Chalet, or dreamt of espousing Monsieur in case she was left a widow, Louis Thirteenth answered, quote, "'Considering the state I am in, I am bound to forgive her, but not to believe her.'" He did not believe her, he never had believed her, and his declaration touching the regency was entirely directed towards counteracting by anticipation the power entrusted to his wife and his brother. The Queen's regency and the Duke of Orleans' lieutenant-generalship were in some sort subordinated to a council composed of the Prince of Condé, Cardinal Mazarin, Chancellor Seguier, Superintendent Boutillier, and Secretary of State Chavigny, quote, with a prohibition against introducing any change therein, for any cause or on any occasion whatsoever. The Queen and the Duke of Orleans had signed and sworn the declaration. King Louis XIII was not yet in his grave when his last wishes were violated. Before his death the Queen had made terms with the ministers. The course to be followed had been decided. On the 18th of May, 1643, the Queen, having brought back the little king to Paris, conducted him in great state to the Parliament of Paris, to hold his bed of justice there. The boy sat down, and said with a good grace that he had come to the Parliament to testify his good will to it, and that his Chancellor would say the rest. The Duke of Orléans then addressed the Queen, quote, the honour of the regency is the due altogether of your majesty, said he, not only in your capacity of mother, but also for your merits and virtues the regency having been confined to you by the deceased king, and by the consent of all the grandees of the realm, I desire no other part in affairs than that which it may please your majesty to give me, and I do not claim to take any advantage from the special clauses contained in the declaration." The Prince of Condé said much the same thing, but with less earnestness, and on the evening of the same day the Queen Regent, having sole charge of the administration of affairs, and modifying the council at her pleasure, announced to the astounded court that she should retain by her Cardinal Mazarin. Not a word had been said about him at the Parliament. The courtiers believed that he was on the point of leaving France, but the able Italian, attractive as he was subtle, had already found a way to please the Queen. She retained as chief of her council the heir to the traditions of Richelieu, and deceived the hopes of the party of Importants, those meddlers of the court at whose head marched the Duke of Beaufort, all puffed up with the confidence lately shown to them by Her Majesty. Poitiers, Bishop of Beauvais, the Queen's confidant during her troubles, quote, expected to be all-powerful in the state. He sought out the Duke of Orléans and the Prince of Condé, promising them governorships of places, and generally anything they might desire he thought he could set the affairs of state going as easily as he could his parish priests but the poor prelate came down from his high hopes when he saw that the cardinal was advancing more and more in the queen's confidence and that for him too much was already thought to have been done in according him admittance to the council whilst flattering him with a hope of the purple memoir de brienne page thirty seven cardinal mazarin soon sent him off to his diocese continuing to humour all parties and displaying foresight and prudence the new minister was even now master 
Louis XIII, without any personal liking, had been faithful to Richelieu to the death. With different feelings, Anne of Austria was to testify the same constancy towards Mazarin. A stroke of fortune came at the very first to strengthen the regent's position. Since the death of Cardinal Richelieu, the Spaniards, but recently overwhelmed at the close of 1642, had recovered courage and boldness. New councils prevailed at the court of Philip IV, who had dismissed Olivares. The House of Austria vigorously resumed the offensive. At the moment of Louis XIII's death, Don Francisco de Mello, governor of the Low Countries, had just invaded French territory by way of the Ardennes, and laid siege to Rocroix on the 12th of May. The French army was commanded by the young Duke of Enghien, the Prince of Condé's son, scarcely twenty-two years old. Louis XIII had given him as his lieutenant and director the veteran Marshal de l'Hôpital, and the latter feared to give battle. The Duke of Enghien, who, quote, was dying with impatience to enter the enemy's country, resolved to accomplish by address what he could not carry by authority. He opened his heart to Gassion alone. As he was a man who saw nothing but what was easy even in the most dangerous deeds, he had very soon brought matters to the point that the prince desired. Marshal de l'Hôpital found himself imperceptibly so near the Spaniards that it was impossible for him any longer to hinder an engagement." Relation de Trente-et-un de la Housset. The army was in front of Rocroi, and out of the dangerous defile which led to the place, without any idea on the part of the marshal and the army that Louis Thirteenth was dead. The Duke of Enghien, who had received the news, had kept it secret. He had merely said in the tone of a master, quote, that he meant to fight, and would answer for the issue. His orders given, he passed along the ranks of his army with an air which communicated to it the same impatience that he himself felt to see the night over, in order to begin the battle. He passed the whole of it at the campfire of the officers of Picardy. In the morning, quote, it was necessary to rouse from deep slumber this second Alexander. Mark him as he flies to victory or death. As soon as he had kindled from rank to rank the ardor with which he was animated, he was seen, in almost the same moment, driving in the enemy's right, supporting ours that wavered, rallying the half-beaten French, putting to flight the victorious Spaniards, striking terror everywhere, and dumbfounding with his flashing looks those who escaped from his blows. There remained that dread infantry of the army of Spain, whose huge battalions in close order, like so many towers, but towers that could repair their breaches, remained unshaken amidst all the rest of the rout, and delivered their fire on all sides. Thrice the young conqueror tried to break these fearless warriors. Thrice he was driven back by the valiant Count of Fuentes, who was seen carried about in his chair, and in spite of his infirmities, showing that a warrior's soul is mistress of the body it animates but yield they must in vain through the woods with his cavalry all fresh does beck rush down to fall upon our exhausted men the prince has been beforehand with him the broken battalions cry for quarter but the victory is to be more terrible than the fight for the duke of enghien whilst with easy mien he advances to receive the parole of these brave fellows they watchful still apprehend the surprise of a fresh attack their terrible volley drives our men mad there is nothing to be seen but slaughter the soldier is drunk with blood, till that great prince, who could not bear to see such lions butchered like so many sheep, calmed excited passions, and to the pleasure of victory joined that of mercy. He would willingly have saved the life of the brave Count of Fuentes, but found him lying amidst thousands of the dead, whose loss is still felt by Spain. The prince bends the knee, and on the field of battle renders thanks to the god of armies for the victory he hath given him. Then there were rejoicings over Racroix delivered, the threats of a dread enemy, 
converted to their shame, the regency strengthened, France at rest, and a reign, which was to be so noble, commenced with such happy augury. Bossuet, Horizon funèbre de Louis de Bourbon, Prince de Condé. Victory or death, below the cross of Burgundy, was borne upon most of the standards taken from the imperialists, and, quote, indeed, says the Gazette de France, the most part were found dead in the ranks where they had been posted, which was nobly brought home by one of the prisoners to our captains when, being asked how many there had been of them, he replied, quote, count the dead. Condé was worthy to fight such enemies, and Bossuet to recount their defeat. Quote, the prince was a born captain, said Cardinal de Retz and all France said so with him on hearing of the victory of Rocroi. The delight was all the keener in the Queen's circle, because the house of Condé openly supported Cardinal Mazarin, bitterly attacked as he was by the important, who accused him of reviving the tyranny of Richelieu. A ditty on the subject was current in the streets of Paris, quote, He is not dead, he is but changed of age, the cardinal, at whom men gird with rage, but all his household make thereat great cheer, it pleaseth not full many a chevalier. They fain had brought him to the lowest stage, beneath his wing came all his lineage, by the same art whereof he made usage, and by my faith, tis still their day, I fear, he is not dead. Hush, we are mum, because we dread the cage, for he's at court, this eminent personage, there to remain of years to come a score ask those importants would you fain no more and they will say in dolorous language he is not dead and indeed on pretext offered by a feminine quarrel between the young duchess of longueville daughter of the prince of conde and the duchess of montbazon the duke of beaufort and some of his friends resolved to assassinate the cardinal the attempt was a failure but the duke of beaufort who was arrested on the second of september was taken to the castle of vincennes madame de chevreuse recently returned to court where she would fain have exacted from the queen the reward for her services and her past sufferings was sent into exile as well as the duke of vendome madame d'hautefort but lately summoned by anne of austria to be near her was soon involved in the same disgrace proud and compassionate without any liking for mazarin she was daring enough during a trip to vincennes to ask pardon for the duke of beaufort quote, the queen made no answer, and the collation being served, Madame d'Hautefort, whose heart was full, ate nothing. When she was asked why, she declared that she could not enjoy anything in such close proximity to that poor boy. The queen could not put up with reproaches, and she behaved with extreme coldness to Madame d'Hautefort. One day at bedtime her ill temper showed itself so plainly that the old favourite could no longer be in doubt about the queen's sentiments. As she softly closed the curtains, quote, I do assure you, madame, she said, that if I had served God with as much attachment and devotion as I have your majesty all my life, I should be a great saint, and raising her eyes to the crucifix, she added, quote, Thou knowest, Lord, what I have done for her. The queen let her go to the convent where Mademoiselle de Lafayette had taken refuge ten years before. Madame d'Hautefort left it ere long to become the wife of Marshal Schomberg, but the party of the important was dead, and the power of Cardinal Mazarin seemed to be firmly established. Quote, it was not the thing just then for any decent man to be on bad terms with the court, says Cardinal de Retz. Negotiations for a general peace, the preliminaries whereof had been signed by King Louis XIII in 1641, had been going on since 1644 at Munster and at Osnabrück, without having produced any result. The Duke of Enghien, who became Prince of Condé in 1646, was keeping up the war in Flanders and Germany, with the cooperation of Viscount Turenne, younger brother of the Duke of Bouillon, and since Rocroi, a Marshal of France. 
the capture of Thionville and of Dunkirk, the victories of Freiburg and Nordlingen, the skilful opening effected in Germany as far as Augsburg by the French and the Swedes, had raised so high the reputation of the two generals that the Prince of Condé, who was haughty and ambitious, began to cause great umbrage to Mazarin. Fear of having him unoccupied deterred the cardinal from peace, and made all the harder the conditions he presumed to impose upon the Spaniards. Meanwhile the United Provinces, weary of a war which fettered their commerce, and skilfully courted by their old masters, had just concluded a private treaty with Spain. The Emperor was trying, but to no purpose, to detach the Swedes likewise from the French alliance, when the victory of Lens, gained on the 20th of August, 1648, over Archduke Leopold and General Beck, came to throw into the balance the weight of a success as splendid as it was unexpected. One more campaign, and Turenne might be threatening Vienna, whilst Condé entered Brussels. The Emperor saw there was no help for it, and bent his head. The House of Austria split in two. Spain still refused to treat with France, but the whole of Germany clamoured for peace. The conditions of it were at last drawn up at Munster by Messieurs Servien and de Lyon. M. Davaux, the most able diplomatist that France possessed, had been recalled to Paris at the beginning of the year. On the 24th of October, 1648, after four years of negotiation, France at last had secured to her Alsace and the three bishoprics of Metz, Toul, and Verdun. Sweden gained western Pomerania, including Stettin, the Isle of Rugen, three miles of the Oder, and the bishoprics of Bremen and Verdun, thus becoming a German power. As for Germany, she had won liberty of conscience and political liberty. The rights of the Lutheran or Reformed Protestants were equalized with those of Catholics. Henceforth, the consent of a free assembly of all the estates of the empire was necessary to make laws, raise soldiers, impose taxes, and decide peace or war. The peace of Westphalia put an end at one and the same time to the Thirty Years' War and to the supremacy of the House of Austria in Germany. So much glory and so many military or diplomatic successes cost dear. France was crushed by imposts, and the finances were discovered to be in utter disorder. The superintendent, Demery, an able and experienced man, was so justly discredited that his measures were, as a foregone conclusion, unpopular. An edict laying octroi or tariff on the entry of provisions into the city of Paris irritated the Burgesses, and Parliament refused to unregister it. For some time past the Parliament, which had been kept down by the iron hand of Richelieu, had perceived that it had to do with nothing more than an able man, and not a master. It began to hold up its head again. A union was proposed between the four sovereign courts of Paris, to wit the Parliament, the Grand Council, the Chamber of Exchequer, and the Court of Aids or Indirect Taxes. The Queen quashed the deed of union. The magistrates set her at naught. The Queen yielded, authorizing the delegates to deliberate in the Chamber of Saint-Louis at the Palace of Justice. The pretensions of the Parliament were exorbitant, and aimed at nothing short of resuming, in the affairs of the State, the position from which Richelieu had deposed it. The concessions which Cardinal Mazarin with difficulty wrung from the Queen augmented the Parliament's demands. Anne of Austria was beginning to lose patience when the news of the victory of Lens restored courage to the court. Quote, Parliament will be very sorry, said the little king, on hearing of the Prince of Condé's success. The grave assemblage, on the 26th of August, was issuing from Notre-Dame, where a Te Deum had just been sung, when Councillor Broussel and President Blanc-Mesnil were arrested in their houses, and taken one to Saint-Germain and the other to Vincennes. This was a familiar proceeding on the part of royal authority in its disagreements with the Parliament. Anne of Austria herself had practised it four years before. It was a mistake on the part of Anne of Austria and Cardinal Mazarin not to have considered the different condition of the public mind. 
a suppressed excitement had for some months been hatching in Paris and in the provinces. Quote, the Parliament growled over the tariff edict, says Cardinal de Retz, and no sooner had it muttered than everybody awoke. People went groping, as it were, after the laws. They were no longer to be found. Under the influence of this agitation, the people entered the sanctuary and lifted the veil that ought always to conceal whatever can be said about the rights of peoples and that of kings, which never accord so well as in silence." The arrest of Broussel, an old man in high esteem, very keen in his opposition to the court, was like fire to flax. Quote, there was a blaze at once, a sensation, a rush, an outcry, and a shutting up of shops. Paul de Gondy, known afterwards as Cardinal de Retz, was at that time coadjutor of the Archbishop of Paris. His uncle, witty, debauched, bold, and restless, lately compromised in the plots of the Count of Soissons against Cardinal Richelieu, he owed his office to the Queen, and, quote, did not hesitate, he says, to repair to her, that he might stick to his duty above all things, End of section 38.